Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. This is Pastor Julie Lewis from Asbury United Methodist Church in Smyrna, Delaware, where we share the love of God and the good news of Jesus Christ in all we do. Good morning, it's Pastor Julie Lewis on this first Sunday after Easter, and we are reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. John Ortberg wrote in his book, Love Beyond Reason, a story about a man who falls off a cliff. He's going to die, but he throws out a hand and miraculously catches a branch. Is anyone up there? Yes. Who are you? I am God, and I'm going to save you. Wonderful. What should I do? Let go of the branch. Is anyone else up there? Now, yes, this is an illustration of doubt, but he, is he doubting that it's really God or is he doubting God's chosen technique of saving him? I'll leave that for you to decide. But on this first Sunday after Easter, we are looking into the most famous story of doubt in the Bible, so famous that poor Thomas here will never be known for all the good things he said and did, but only for his doubt, leaving him to gain the nickname and giving us an idiom to talk about any skeptic anywhere. Doubting Thomas. No one wants to be known as a doubting Thomas, right? It could mean there's something we don't quite believe, something we're questioning. Maybe there's a lack of faith or trust or an inability to commit. We're wavering. Or hesitating because we simply have doubt in one form or another. Ever been like that? 
You're faced with a decision. Well, let's say, for example, who to vote for in an election. And you look at all the propaganda and promises, research the background of the candidates, and then on election day, you stand in the voting booth and can't commit. Even after all the race research, you have doubts about who will do the best job. You vote and then spend a sleepless night worrying if you chose the right one. Now, maybe that scenario isn't you, but we are human beings after all. And if we're honest, we all deal with doubt at some point in our lives. And if we're really honest, like Thomas here, we've had doubts about our faith too. Like the man in our story, we've at least wondered, (laughs) is anyone else up there? We've often been taught that doubt is a bad thing. Some things Christians should avoid, like the plague, that if we have real faith, there shouldn't be any doubt. Thomas might disagree. Even though he seems to be a pariah in regards to doubt, he has a lot to teach us about how Jesus uses our doubt to make our faith stronger. It worked that way for Thomas. He became a bold evangelist, taking the gospel message as far as India and eventually being martyred for his rock-solid faith. Jesus assures us through this story that he will take our doubt and turn it into the foundation for an unshakable faith if we let him. My prayer today is that we all open our hearts and minds to receive in faith and trust what Jesus will do in us this morning. So let's get the background first. We talked last week about Resurrection Day with Mary and the other Mary, finding the empty tomb, getting a message to the disciples, and seeing the very real Jesus right in front of them. Even if John's account differs in who came to see the empty tomb, it was still only Mary who actually saw the risen Christ. Our passage begins on that very same day, and Mary has delivered her message, or at least that's implied here. We may wonder why they haven't headed to Galilee yet since that was part of the message. They were locked in a house in Jerusalem together. Scripture says it's for fear of the Jews, and it could be they fear being arrested as collaborators with Jesus, but most likely it's more because they are in mourning, and there are strict rules governing the mourning period. Being locked in and not leaving your house for seven days is part of that, so that could be the reason that they haven't gone to Galilee and are still locked in the house. They don't want to be seen as breaking the law. Hard to know for sure. Either explanation works. But it's important to point out that with both explanations, if the disciples believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, neither explanation holds up. If Jesus has risen from the dead as he said that he would, then even death has no power over him, so why should they be afraid of being arrested or being seen as breaking the law? Maybe they want to believe, but they all must have their doubts, or why would they lock themselves in? No need to mourn someone who is not dead, and no need to fear the Jews if Jesus is indeed alive. Then Jesus miraculously appears in the midst of them. The doors are still locked, and as we can see from their ability to touch him, he has a physical body. This is verified by the scars he reveals to them, the ones left by the crucifixion. Now there is no doubt. Jesus is the one standing before them. He is the one they knew before. He is the one who was crucified, died, and was buried. 
Now he is alive and standing right in front of them, removing all doubt that he is the Messiah, their Savior. A happy reunion for sure. Then what do they do? Run and tell Thomas, who wasn't there with them. What does Thomas do? Come on, say it. He doubts. <laughs> he needs to see Jesus with his own eyes, touch him with his own hands. I'm sure he trusts his brother disciples, but he's not quite convinced they saw what they think they saw. Maybe they were burning too much incense, fasting a little too long, or in their grief, their eyes were playing tricks on them. He needed to see to believe. But to be fair, all the disciples were the same. They didn't believe until they saw Jesus, touched Jesus, and heard his voice. Thomas is singled out in the doubt world simply because he was the only one not in the locked room the first time. Thomas did have hope, though. And we see the evidence of that hope as he waits with the disciples in that same room, hoping that Jesus would appear to them again. And Jesus does not disappoint. He appears just as before and addresses Thomas directly. You need to see and touch me to believe. Well, here, whatever will remove your doubt. Here I am. I want you to touch me, see me, hear my voice, so you too can believe that I am who I said I am, and everything I said would happen has happened. Once Thomas has been able to do all he wanted to prove that Jesus was alive, he moves to make the first true, full confession of Christ, my Lord and my God. In that moment, he truly believes not just that Christ is risen from the dead, but that he is indeed God in the flesh. The other disciples didn't jump to that conclusion when they saw him, but Thomas, out of his doubt, his wavering, discovers the whole truth about Jesus. His doubt became the foundation for a rock-solid faith. So what about us? No one here will be able to see the physically risen Christ, at least not in this life, unless Jesus returns during our lifetime. So how do we come to believe in Christ, to have that rock-solid faith? How can we overcome our doubts when, unlike Mary, the disciples, and Thomas, we can't see him, touch him, and hear his human voice? Or later, as he will do to prove he is truly human again, watch him eat a good breakfast. Certainly, John tries to overcome our doubt with his gospel. He says in verses 30 and 31 that he is writing this book so that we may come to believe based on what the disciples have seen, what they reported. However, he also just wrote honestly that those first believers didn't overcome their doubt without seeing and touching. So what can we do? The opiate of the masses is what Karl Marx called organized religion. And what he meant is that religion or faith in God worked like opium in a sick person. It reduced people, it quote, reduced people's immediate suffering and provided them with pleasant illusions which gave them the strength to carry on, end quote. I've actually heard people use the phrase high on Jesus before, and not as a good thing, but as an accusation that we've made it all up in our heads, just like being high on some illicit drug. 
And I think about those statements from time to time and re-examine my faith in light of it. I'm positive that's how atheists and unbelievers see me and my fellow believers or people of any faith, that we're deluding ourselves to make life more bearable. A very close member of my family thinks that way, and I always wonder what they think of me being a pastor. Do they think I'm leading people down an imaginary path, defrauding them into believing something that's not true? To be honest, I have stopped and thought about it, wondered if what I believe in my heart is actually true and not just something I desperately want to believe so life is easier to deal with. And if you're honest, you've probably had that thought once or twice as well. The thing is that Jesus expects our doubts, welcomes our doubts. It's a normal human quality. One thing we see in our passage today is that Jesus is not at all bothered by our doubts and questions. He's so pleased with Mary's faith that he doesn't even wait to reveal himself to her. She may have had some doubts, but she went in search of the truth. The disciples linger in Jerusalem instead of going to Galilee. Mary told them what she witnessed, but they had doubts. Jesus didn't wait for them to figure it out. He appeared to them in the flesh, where they were, to allay their fears and doubts. He didn't wait for them to go to Galilee. He didn't chastise them. He simply provided what they needed to get past their doubts. The same was true for Thomas. He didn't scold him. He reached out his hands and willingly surrendered to whatever Thomas needed to believe. One thing my own faith journey has taught me is that like Jacob wrestling with God in the desert, true faith can only come through doubts and wrestling with the one question that matters. Is there a God? For Christians, our question can come in different ways. Like, is Jesus really God resurrected from the dead? Is Jesus who our Bible says he is? Is it only faith in him that we need to have eternal life and strength to overcome whatever this world throws at us? If we never wrestle with our doubts and fears, then I doubt our faith is real. Jesus says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is strongest when we put our trust in what we cannot see in the flesh, where there will never be absolute proof. And that faith can only come as we ask those hard and difficult questions and keep searching for the answers. I don't know what causes you to doubt, Maybe you don't doubt at all, but my guess is that at some point in your life, you had doubts. And those doubts were overcome by choosing to believe, even in the face of that doubt. Our faith, our choice to believe, is how we are able to overcome that doubt. Now, for most of us, faith and doubt wrestle with each other along most of our faith journey. It goes back and forth sometimes around and around. There are times our faith is so strong 
But then things happen that make us question that faith. A lot of times our faith is challenged when we face difficult situations like illness or tragedy, and we wonder if what we believe about God could be true. How could a loving God allow that to happen? That's a doubt question. Why won't God heal me or my loved one? Why isn't my prayer being answered? Those are doubt questions too. I've seen the power of those questions turn many people away from faith. The struggle was just too much. But if we can learn to take our doubt along with us as we go along our faith journey, then maybe, just maybe, our doubt can be the foundation of a rock-solid faith. Our doubt is where we should begin our search for the truth. God gave us a reasoning mind, so we should use it. However, we should be willing to be open to the truth that God is who he says he is, not who we think he should be. And what I mean by this is if we believe in a God who is all-powerful and wise, a God whose thoughts are beyond our comprehension, then as we search, we need to let go of our expectations. If God does not live up to our expectations of how God should work, we can find ourselves disappointed and doubting his very existence. God is not a genie who grants us our wishes but a God who always acts for our good, even when we cannot see it at the moment. In our doubt, we can resolve to have the courage to believe, to have faith, even as we search for the truth. Faith isn't certainty. It is belief in the face of questions and misgivings. It is our ability to resolve to trust in spite of our doubt. There are so many stories of doubt in the Bible. Moses, Abraham, David, Gideon, and even John the Baptist as he sat in prison waiting for his death. So we're all in good company. When I have my doubts, I spend some time looking back over my life at the times I've actually heard God speak to me, the challenges God has brought me through, the love I feel in my heart that has given me the courage to do what I do each and every day. I will proclaim my faith and my love for God every day, in every way, even when doubt comes. So if you find yourself doubting, look around and see Jesus working in the world. I, like Paul, know that if it is all one of those Jesus highs and none of it is true, I will still have faith because my life will be better for my faith and the way I live my life following in the steps of Jesus will make this world a better place to be. I would rather live my life according to the truth of Jesus Christ, living my faith to the fullest than to live without it. In our doubts, the evidence is still there. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So when doubts come, look around. We can see God everywhere if we have eyes to see. Thomas and the disciples teach us that even in our doubts, Jesus will reveal himself to us. He loves us too much to leave us in our doubts. 
struggle, claim your doubt, but live your faith to the fullest each and every day. Jesus loves us even more as we stay close to him, as we touch and see him in our hearts and in the world around us in the name of love. So when in doubt, have faith. Amen.